This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Robert Curry, author of the new book, Common Sense Nation, Unlocking the Forgotten Power of the American Idea. Robert serves on the board of directors of the indispensable Claremont Institute, and his reviews and articles have appeared in the Claremont Review of Books, The Federalist, The American Thinker, and several other publications. Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ben. Bob, your book serves as a sort of introduction to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, not to mention the Federalist Papers, and really American Enlightenment thought in general. What motivated you to write this book at this time? Uh, To save the country. To save America. Imagine, Imagine this. Imagine if tomorrow... 66 or 67 percent of Americans woke up with a clear grasp of the founders idea and a good understanding of the Declaration and the Constitution and were rededicated to that. But what would happen, what that means is that the country would be instantly healed politically and in short order the government would be put right. I think Americans feel that our system of liberty has been slip sliding away and the cause for that is easy to see. We've been electing people to government who are indifferent to the Constitution, ignorant of it, even hostile to it. So now we have a situation where there's a huge disconnect between the people in the government who, who act like rulers and the ordinary Americans who feel like the government's not doing right by them anymore. So. The point is that we can't, we can't hope to be saved from the outside. We have to save ourselves. To save ourselves, we have to, we have to make ourselves responsible for the country's well-being. Now, the first three words of the Constitution are, we the people. So the system the founders gave us is dependent on us. And um, we, what, things have gone wrong because we've let the founders down. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, You talk about sort of the ignorance of the American people of their own ideological heritage. And it's probably most hilariously, but also sadly illustrated if you watch Bill O'Reilly's show and there's a segment Waters World and his producer, Jesse Waters, goes around asking people questions about the Constitution. Surely something that most Americans likely don't know about today is the debt that America owes to actually folks from Scotland. So explain a little bit of that history. Well, it's an interesting fact and an important one that when they were 16 years old, uh, Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton were being were being tutored by men who'd come from Scotland with the um, ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment. And that those ideas uh, go by the general name of common sense and, and also by moral sense. So what the... Um, what the uh, founders learned from the from the uh, from the Scottish Enlightenment was really the basic ideas that we were going to um, going to live by: unalienable rights, self-evident truths, all that familiar stuff. It comes from that tradition, and it was taught to the founders. And they said, "Aha! We can use these ideas to create for ourselves self-government." One of the figures who I had not come across frequently in my study of the Constitution is Thomas Reed. Tell us about his significance. Well, his his significance is he's the key, really, to understanding 
the influence of the Scottish Enlightenment on the founders. He was the sort of the last and greatest of these Scottish Enlightenment philosophers. His his philosophy he called it common sense realism, and Arthur Herman and others and me, me and my book I argue that that it's pretty well understood if you look that common sense realism guided the thinking of the founders. If you look at the if you look at their writings, you read their writings. The word common sense comes up all the time. And common sense actually lit the fuse, didn't it? Uh, Tom Paine's book, Common Sense, did something really important. It convinced Americans, convinced enough Americans that we didn't need a king. Before that time, most people, even in America, thought, well, you got to have a king. And Tom Paine convinced enough Americans that we didn't need to have a king to make the... Um, to make the revolution possible. And, and, and he conducted a kind of common sense, two neighbors talking over the fence discussion about it. And, and when he subjected monarchy to a common sense, ordinary two neighbors talking examination, it flunked. He won that argument in his day and he's won it. And we believe that today. I mean, if, you, if somebody comes up and says, we need a king, that'll solve our problems. Americans dismiss that out of hand. And we do so because of Thomas Paine. And he called his book Common Sense. And that model of common sense thinking, that's what the founders believed would be the way that we would conduct our affairs. Common sense discussion among citizens to choose our representatives, to go to government as our agents, and carry out common sense um, policies and decisions to, for the welfare of the country. That was the big idea. And, and one fascinating related vignette is the idea that the founders were actually all inculcated to some degree um, by one particular college class. You term it the most, in, quote, the most influential single college course in America's history, unquote. And this was at an Ivy League institution, which today probably repudiates everything that was taught in that course. But tell us a little bit about it. Well, John Witherspoon taught that course. He was, um, he was uh, James Madison's mentor. He was also president of Princeton, called College of New Jersey in those days, but it's Princeton. And um, that course, it, it was the most influential, lots of people agree it was the most influential course in American history because it really trained a vast number of people who were to go on and carry out all kinds of roles, not just Madison, but um, people in the Supreme Court, people in the constitutional conventions. You know, one of the most interesting mistakes that you can read, if you start reading about the founders, you may find very solid scholars who say that John Witherspoon signed the Declaration and the Constitution. Well, it's just not true. Uh, he did, he was critical in, in, in the Declaration, but he wasn't present for the, for the Constitutional Convention. But it's a common mistake and one quite forgivable because his, it was as if he was present. So many of the people at the Constitutional Convention had, had been his students who had been influenced by him that it's a mistake that you run across in very good books by very good, um, very good scholars. In fact, it's a mistake I've made more than once in writing, and I have to go back and remind myself, oh, no, he wasn't actually there in person, but he was so influential that people just can't seem to get it out of their heads that he wasn't there. One very interesting explication that you have, uh, which people commonly come across in history, but I think you explain it in a very interesting way, 
is the idea that the founders were obviously heavily influenced by Locke. And there's the line about life, liberty, and property in Locke. But in the Declaration of Independence, we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Speak a little bit about how we go from property to pursuit of happiness. Well, it's a very interesting section of the book. I, I, I recommend everybody read it because it's, it's so valuable. Can I just put in a word for, from our sponsor for just a second here, Ben, if you don't sure, mind? Sure, sure. You know, um, my little book is a small book, partly written by me and partly written by the founders. It has eight brief chapters. If, you, if somebody reads them, the, the Declaration and the Constitution will just open themselves to their minds. The part of the book that wasn't written by me was written by the founders, and it's the Declaration and the Constitution right there between the covers of the book. So these fascinating questions like what happened between uh, Locke's uh, idea and the founders' idea is made really clear in a way that I think is very helpful. The the big idea is that according – if you simply read the – the Constitu- uh, the Declaration, it says the purpose of our government is to maintain and protect our unalienable rights. And unalienable rights was an idea that came from the Scottish Enlightenment. And Locke argued that we had rights by pro- as a result of them being our property. But the, but the Scots did not agree with him on that. Their idea was unalienable rights. And the, um, the Americans took that up and in the in the declaration they say the purpose of government is to is to preserve our unalienable rights and our property rights are among our unalienable rights so um this uh, this notion is a, is a is a radical one always before then the purpose of government was to rule people were to be ruled and the government was to rule them and the and the and the king was the the biggest guy on the block with the biggest army but the founders had a completely idea, completely new idea, which was the purpose of government is to preserve our rights. Nobody said that before, but it says it right in the in the Declaration. Let me reach for my copy of it right here, and it says um, that uh, that that's the purpose. The only legitimate purpose of government is the preservation of our rights. Completely new idea. They rejected all other governments existing in the world at that time, and uh, pretty much uh, all the governments around today. You also incorporate in the the teachings and the contributions to the Western canon and liberalism, capital L liberalism, of Adam Smith. And you note that Adam Smith had a third book that he was working on, which dealt with politics, and I imagine probably political economy, that he did not complete and then ended up ordering it to be burnt uh, before he died. And you write that the Federalist Papers relate intrinsically and deeply to what Adam Smith had written in terms of the notions of, you know, the sort of classical idea of voluntary exchange and then the more libertarian notion of spontaneous order. Speak a little bit to that relationship. What a wonderful topic that is. The some of your listeners may not be familiar with the Federalist Papers, so can I just say a word or two about them? The of course. Hamilton, Hamilton and Madison and Jay wrote a series of op-eds, and these op-eds were to try to convince the Americans that, that they should vote for the Constitution. It was a, it was a, it was like they carried on a powerful campaign of persuasion. Do vote for the 
do vote for the Constitution, and, and Americans did. Now, here's the interesting thing about the Federalist Papers. That, that's the greatest book on political liberty in the history of the world, and it was op-eds in papers. Today, pretty much scholars read that, but in those days, regular American voters read it, thought about it, debated it, and voted. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and the, Imaginable and, but, today. Yeah, it's just the, the the level of participation and the level of we had, you know, the greatest uh, administration we've ever had was the first one. I mean, Washington was president. Jefferson was at state. Hamilton was at Treasury. Heck, the, the guy who ran the post office was a universal genius by the name of Benjamin Franklin. But it wasn't just that the government was really great. Then the citizenry, they were the real greatest generation. And they proved that by the level of debate and the quality of the debate that went into that into that uh, decision to go ahead with the Constitution. Well, the Federalist Papers all about that. And what I what I show in my book is something that no one talks about, but I think it's really important that the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment, particularly the ideas of Adam Smith, who believed in the free market, is a key to understanding what those guys were thinking. The, so what the result of that has been. The founders gave us a system of liberty for free people and a the idea of a market economy. The result of that has been America, the the country where where there were the the life for a typical citizen is more prosperous and more expanded and more uh, free and um, more fulfilling than anywhere it's ever been. Pretty cool. Who, in your view, is the most underrated figure in the founding of the United States? Ooh, what a great question. Ooh, man, what a great question. I think that, I, th- I, think, I think it's George Washington. <laughs> Does that sound counterintuitive? I mean, everybody knows how great he was. No, I don't think so. Washington was inconceivably magnificent. Um, we can, I think we can imagine the, the founding succeeding without any of the others. As important as Jefferson was, even as important as Madison was, I think we could have maybe made it without them. But without Washington, it wasn't possible. He was simply the greatest man of the second millennium. The more you know about him, the, the better he looks. Um, I'm... Um, I, I managed to say a few things about Washington in my book, but I approached any comment about um, Washington with a uh, almost fearful awe of uh, his greatness. You know, my favorite story about him doesn't even get in the book, but you know, a lot of I met a lot of people from Cincinnati, and I've asked them all, "What does Cincinnati come from?" I've never met a person from Cincinnati who knows the story, but the Cincinnati, as you know, were the officers who served with. Um, with Washington in the revolution. They, they, they banded together and became a, an organization. And they wanted him to be president of that organization. And they also wanted to make it hereditary. So their sons and their sons' sons would also be members of the, of the Cincinnati. Well, Washington agreed to be president of the Cincinnati on the condition that it not be hereditary. I mean, here's a man whose thinking was deeply Republican, small R Republican, the American Republic, in a way that um, in a way that even his officers didn't grasp. Well, a hereditary order—that's uh, Europe. 
but and but Washington has his instinct and and about what we were doing and his incredible judgment uh, in people and his prudence and his boldness. Oh, what a what a guy! You just don't see that kind of humility among our benevolent, enlightened leaders t- today. <laughs> Uh, Now, you clearly delved into a lot of the source texts from the era, which is, of course, the best way to understand it and probably the way that it is least or or, or not approached um, from K through 12 education through college today. What was your most surprising discovery as you went on a sort of intellectual journey that led you to produce this book? Well, yeah, thank you. What a great question. Most surprisingly, I, I, I kept finding the Scots wherever I went when I was thinking, when I was reading and trying to understand the founders. They were there everywhere. The imprint of the Scots is all over the place. The, the, um, they threw the phrase common sense around all the time. That phrase is, in every, is everywhere. They really were guided by that idea of unalienable rights. Central notion, one of the great philosophical discoveries of the Scots. Uh, We know that Washington and all of the other founders read Adam Smith and cared about him. So the the, the shocking thing is how far this imprint of the Scots goes. I mean, I actually um, was hesitated to, to, uh, you know, to to be swept along by that idea, but but fight against it as I may, you know, it... um, it, it just was there wherever I looked. Here's a, here's a wonderful quote from John, John Marshall, you know, the Chief Justice. He's talking about the basic idea that Americans don't surrender their rights to the rulers. The, 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 our elected representatives are just our agents to carry out our will. Here's what Marshall had to say. And here's how he started it out, just so beautifully. It is the plain dictate of common sense. Is the plain dictate of common sense, and the whole political system is founded on the idea that the departments of government are the agents of the nation. So, wherever you look, um, if you look at all the consti- different constitutions of the of the state of the states, Massachusetts and Virginia, they there you you'll run into unalienable rights and self-evident truths all over this place. The more you look the more you find it if you're just keyed to that idea. One of the heavily debated historical issues that occurs among conservatives and classical liberals and the like is is when did we break from our intellectual tradition to progressivism? And, and you can debate what point it is. And you sort of set up the contrast in the form of two figures – John Witherspoon versus Woodrow Wilson. So compare and contrast these two for us and their views on the American system. It's a good example of what I mean. When, when you, when the further you look, the, the more you see the Scottish Enlightenment. Because John Witherspoon was the most important proponent of Scottish Enlightenment ideas, and he was that proponent in that famous class that was the most influential class in the history of America. He founded. He refounded Princeton on the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment and on the model of the Scottish universities. So, and he was uh, a key and important figure in the founding. Fast forward a little, a little later, about a hundred years later, say, and um, and Woodrow Wilson 
a little over 100 years later, Woodrow Wilson becomes president. He refounds Princeton on the ideas of the Germans, of, on the ideas of German political ideas. And and he and really he's this the key person in the, in the in the new idea for America, the progressive idea. And so he became the first American president to openly and in print and in speech reject the ideas of the Declaration and reject the Constitution. He said to people, "Pay no attention to that first part of the Declaration. You know the part about unalienable rights. The only part that's interesting is the list of complaints against the king." And he said. Uh, the Constitution, he looked at the Constitution as a bad idea because all of the checks and balances and other features that were put into the, carefully put into the Constitution by the founders to protect our liberty, he saw them as impediments to the government being able to do the things that it needed to do um, uh, according to the ideas of the people who were in government. So, he, so that, that's the point right there. When 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 uh, Wilson when Woodrow Wilson was arguing for the progressive ideas, and then when he was elected president and got to put them in place, that's the turning point where we began to where America began to lose its grip on the founders' idea of the of of America and became and began to slide into a completely different view of America, one that rejects the founders, rejects the Declaration and the Constitution. And that's kind of where we are a lot right now. Yeah, I think by any sober analysis, everyone would come to the conclusion that it's the ideas of Wilson that are ascendant and seemingly ascendant at an accelerating pace, although we can obviously debate that. Many will argue today that the Constitution is effectively a mere piece of parchment. What do you say to those people? Well, it is, it is a mere piece of parchment if we Americans don't take it, um, take it to heart again and, and insist, on, um, insist on, it, on us living up to those, those principles. Because on paper, you know, the Soviets had a pretty good constitution, but there was no freedom in the Soviet Union. So what's happening now is as we, as we live in a more and more post-constitutional America, uh, the, the, the Constitution's being rendered to being um, a mere piece of paper. If it's, you know, when, when Nancy Pelosi was asked by that reporter, where in the Constitution uh, is it granted the power of Congress to uh, make an, a, bill, a bill like Obamacare? She said, are you serious? In other words, the idea that the government, the, the, that the Congress was responsible to consider whether a piece of legislation was constitutional or not was absurd to her. So according to the, according to the, here's the founder's idea. The, the government was to be um, adhered by the Constitution. The Congress in making the laws, the president in executing the laws, and the Supreme Court in adjudicating the laws were to be bound by what's in the Constitution. Today, Congress makes law without considering its constitutionality. The president uses executive orders to go around the Congress, and um, for the most part, Supreme, the Supreme Court, five people in the Supreme Court have replaced the Constitution. If five people say it's the Constitution, then it doesn't matter if what they say contradicts what's in the Constitution.
What is the one thing you most hope that people walk away with from reading Common Sense Nation? Oh, what a great question. Thank you, Ben. Uh, the, what I most hope is that, that people who read it are inspired to believe that we can get our country back on course. If they read it and feel that it, it can make a difference, then I ask them to think about their circle of influence and beyond. And, and can they use the book to get us back on track? As soon as Americans are back on track, America's back on track. And the only way that can happen is one person at a time. I wrote the book to give the American who loves America and who cares about America a tool to better understand it and maybe to help his neighbors, his kids, his neighbor's kids better understand it. The beautiful thing about the founding is it's so beautiful that once you understand it, it's hard not to love. Among your many great points in this book, and, and we'll end our interview with this, you quote someone who is wrongfully, in my view, not known as a wordsmith, but who sort of exemplified the common sense realism that you talk about as being so essential to our founding fathers, and that's silent Calvin Coolidge. And I'll quote part of what you quote in the book, and this is his response to basically the progressive ethos that was being promulgated um, during or prior to his presidency. And Coolidge said this, and I quote, If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth and their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward, toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. So we'll leave you, uh, the listener, with that. And Bob Curry, thanks so much for speaking with us. The name of the book is Common Sense Nation and really appreciated it. Thank you, Ben. Have a great day. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Viles Freeway.